If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62, uh, if you don't have a copy, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, inside cover of the bulletin, you can find the scripture text there. There's also uh, pew Bibles, the red ones are hymnals, the black ones are pew Bibles in the chair rack in front of you there. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand, by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and your foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Thus ends the reading of God's word, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we come before you. We ask you that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. What should I preach after Isaiah? I'm, I'm, I'm not asking that now, but I did ask that to my small group back in the fall. And the answer I remember most was this, something encouraging, because we're all weary right now. Remember, that was not on time change Sunday when everyone got an hour less of sleep. So nonetheless, why, uh, why do I mention all this, especially because I'm not ready to announce that next series after Isaiah yet? Well, because two of my outline points contain the words, no rest. So on the surface, that may sound discouraging, not encouraging. I may have failed miserably, but look a bit closer. What's going on in this passage here? Is it really discouraging or is it a breath of fresh air? beginning of chapter 62, someone, Isaiah or God himself, is not resting, not keeping silent until when? Until God's people are a 
burning and beautiful torch, a crown, a beautiful bride with a new name, a new identity. Someone is eagerly anticipating a new day when God's people will have their full inheritance. And in light of that, God encourages the watchmen of Jerusalem to not rest until God establishes Jerusalem. No rest sounds discouraging on the surface, but it shouldn't. Because God's word to us here is not something like there's no rest for the weary. No, it's, it's more like this. Keep praying the promises of God because God pursues us passionately and unceasingly. Keep praying his promises because he pursues us passionately. He pursues us unceasingly. We'll look at that first as we see in verses 1 through 6, no rest for the Savior. No rest for the Savior. Look with me at verse 1. It says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Who's talking here? Is it Isaiah or is it the Lord's anointed? If you look at my outline point, I've kind of tipped my hand because here's the thing. Even if this is Isaiah talking, even if Isaiah is the one who won't keep silent, he's praying fervently until Zion is established, as some would say. The point is, is that this is going to happen. God will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord's anointed has set his face like a divine GPS, and it will not stop until his city, his people are a bright and burning torch, an example of the righteousness that they have not earned. Because of his purpose, because of his sovereignty, he does all that he pleases, the scripture says. Because of that, there will be no rest for the Savior until his people are saved, until they shine like the sun. Look with me at verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness in all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Some of this reminds me of what Peter says, First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here is alluding more to Hosea than Isaiah, but the themes are kind of the same, aren't they? From darkness to light, from pariahs to priests, from hellions, if you will, to holiness. We are, we are going to see all of this this morning. We're going to pound the promises of God into our hearts and our minds today. We're going to expound the glories of the great inheritance that we have, our future home, all those good things. But first, we do need to remember who we are and what we've been saved from. Why did God save Israel? Deuteronomy 7 Someone I know used to summarize it this way. He'd say, it's not because you were cute. It's not because, as he says in Deuteronomy 7, that you were the most numerous people in all the earth. No, you were the least among all peoples. And God did that so that he would be glorified in the end. Why did God save Paul? 1 Timothy 1.15 says, because he was the chief, the foremost of sinners, so that no murderer, no deadbeat could ever say, I'm a lost cause. Really? Look at Paul. 
Why did God save you and me? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he finishes a couple verses later by saying, So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. God has saved us so that others would see our glory, which is really God's glory. He saved us so that others would see that they would desire God's good gifts and that they would come to him. And he will not rest until all this is accomplished, until we are saved and all of his chosen people are saved. You might say he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus and that complete work, a complete work in and through us, that complete work, it'll result in our brightness, our righteousness, our glory. It also involves a new name, a new identity. And what else? Look at verse three. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, yes, we are a people who were called out of the darkness and into his glorious light. And when you read this verse, verse 3, is God putting the emphasis on the out of darkness part or into the glorious light part? Read it again with me. It says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Almost makes you blush, doesn't it? God thinks that way about, about me? <laughs> a crown? A diadem? A crown of beauty? Is that what God is working to achieve? Is that why he takes no rest? Keep going. It says in verse four, you shall be no more termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her in your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We'll spend time talking about the new names a little bit later. For now, focus on the, the marriage imagery here. These people who had disobeyed, who had then gotten exiled, kicked out of the promised land, they felt forsaken, desolate. They felt like a woman with no husband, no family, no hope. Now, to clarify here, this is not to demean the estate of singleness or widowhood or anything like that. Singleness can be a gift of God, which Paul knew firsthand. A time with fewer entanglements, the ability to devote oneself more fully to God. But in the Old Testament, a woman without family, without husband, was often destitute, without the means to provide for herself. That fact is assumed in the Old Testament, not so much explained, and it's confirmed by historians and scholars and all of that. But the point is, Israel felt desolate. She felt unloved. She felt forsaken. And God comes in and says, no, not true. You will not be called desolate. Because what does he say? My delight is in you. And your land, which is desolate, destroyed, occupied by foreigners, armies who've come in and invaded and torn down buildings and all those things, your land will be married. Now, at this point, the metaphors start to multiply. They start to get mixed a little bit. 
Your sons will marry you. Your land is married. What's going on here? Well, Barry Webb explains the idea is of consummation and an indissoluble union between God, people, and place. In other words, God will be their God. They will be his people. Home, sweet home, will be even sweeter than before. And why is that? As the end of verse 5 says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Men, I wonder if it's harder for us to hear that as good news this morning. Maybe. But have you ever felt unloved? Have you ever felt uncared for? Like no one's looking out for you except you. I look out for everybody else. I'm always taking care of this and that and whatever. Sometimes I wish someone would look out for me. And good news. Your Savior is looking out for you, and he will not rest until you have all of the security and affirmation and glory that he has promised you. You can think of it this way. There will be no rest for the Savior until Psalm 23, verse 1 is 100% true. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, no want, no lack, no unmet needs. There will be no rest for the Savior, for the good shepherd, until you have no more wants, no more needs unmet, no more, no more rest for him until there is no more want for you. Isn't that good news? And after no rest for the Savior, we also see this. We see new names for the forsaken. That's our second point, new names for the forsaken. We are mostly skipping to the end of the passage so that we can end in the middle. Hopefully that makes sense. But God's God promises his people a new name. He says it all the way back in verse 2. And based on verse 4, verses 10 through 12, it seems like that, new, that name is multifaceted. There are multiple new names mentioned here. Between verse 4, verse 12, you see the following names for Israel or for her land. You see, my delight is in her. Married, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out, a city not forsaken. And then in verse 4 specifically, you also see what we might call their old names. Their old names. Verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. Might be wondering who was calling them forsaken. Who was calling them desolate was it them was it someone else of one level does it matter but for some reason someone was saying they were forsaken in their land a major source of God's tangible blessings and promises back then as an agricultural society their land was desolate now you can guess without too much trouble at the reasons why God was striking them he said this plenty of times in Isaiah he was striking them with the rod of discipline and that wasn't purely metaphorical in this instance, or spiritual. It was God raising up foreign armies to defeat his chosen nation. And then those nations were shipping them off into exile. It happened first in the northern part of Israel and then in the southern part as well. They looked forsaken because God had let them be exiled. They looked desolate because foreign armies had been marching all over their land. Maybe their crops had been destroyed in the process. Maybe they were 
possessed by foreigners who blasphemed their God instead of blessing him. You see some of that in verse 8. They were called forsaken. Their land was called desolate. But God says, I'll give you new names. <clears throat> new names, we would expect, that reflect their new status. In the same way that their old names reflected their old sad status. God will not rest until this is accomplished, until they receive those new names, that new status, then his people should be encouraged, shouldn't they? Look with me at verse 10. It says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. What's going on here? Well, there's a few things. One, remember God's people are exiled. And God has also promised that he will be a light to the nations that others will see the future glory of his people. And now he's calling his people, calling them from every corner of the earth where they've been scattered and exiled. He's calling them to come through the gates, prepare the way, build the autobahns so that all of his people can come racing through, move the stones out of the way, put up a signal or a flagpole so that they know where to go. What's going on here? Well, it's the forsaken. They're coming home to the desolate land, only they're not forsaken, and the land isn't desolate anymore. They are God's delight, and their land has been restored. It's fruitful. We'll talk about it in a minute, but you see that in verses 8 and 9. They're not forsaken. Their land isn't desolate. They're his delight. The land has been restored. One sense they are the ones coming. They're answering God's call. Go through, go through. And on the other hand, isn't God the one who's coming to them? Look at verse 11. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He announces it. He announces it to the end of the earth, to, uh, to also, especially to his people, to anyone who hears his voice. He says, behold, your salvation comes. Love came down at Christmas. That book is still in my head a few months later. I know it's not Christmas anymore. Your salvation comes to you. Yes, in one sense, God bids us come. But what does that mean? Does it mean that it's all up to us? Do we have to find the X that marks the spot on the map and figure out where to go? Do we have to solve all the clues and find the Holy Grail ourselves, put forth all the effort and all of that? Or does the high and holy one come down to us? To those who are lowly and contrite. To those who are forsaken. Who dwell in a desolate land. Yes, our God says come. But he also promises to come to us. To bring salvation to our doorstep. Not because he's some kind of divine butler who brings us whatever we want. But because he is a good and gracious savior. He brings us what we need. In his goodness and mercy, they pursue us all the days of our life. Just this week, I was with one of our elders, and he was praying, praying for someone who needs it, frankly. And he prayed that the hound of heaven would pursue this certain brother or sister in Christ. I think it was John Stott who coined that phrase based on Psalm 23, that God is like the hound of heaven. You can't hide from him. He just keeps coming. He keeps pursuing and searching for his people. 
Yes, he bids us come, but he also comes to us. He comes bringing salvation, bringing this reward, this repayment. Again, that's not because God owes us anything. It's because God has promised blessings and he fully intends to repay them, to pay them to us. And those blessings, they include new names. They include a new identity. Look with me at verse 12. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Keep in mind, many of the exiles knew that they had failed to obey. that They were unholy. It's something we have in common with them. Our best obedience on our best day is not enough to earn the name holy on our own. But you know, sometimes it's not simply our own unholiness that discourages us, is it? I heard this story secondhand recently, a new mother lamenting having to raise a child in the fallen, corrupt society we live in today. She didn't use the word forsaken, but the idea certainly seemed to be there. And on the one hand, I don't even want to argue with her. There are notable ways that society has become more, more godless in the past decade or two. We ask ourselves, do our laws lead to godly biblical behavior or not? Do they do that less than they used to? Are our laws pleasing and honoring to God? Are they less so that way? And we might ask why. Is it because nominal Christians, Christians in name only, who weren't born again, they have stopped pretending? Is it that? Or are there just fewer Christians now than there were a few years ago? Or has the church begun to tolerate ungodly behavior in the hopes that we could achieve godly ends in the public square? Is it all of the above? Is it, is it a little bit of all of the above? Is our society forsaken? Frankly, that's the wrong question. What's the right one? You could start here. Is God still God? Has God stopped passionately pursuing his goal? Has he stopped construction of the city of the redeemed? Has he gotten out of the redemption business? Does he still make sinners into saints? Saints, those who are holy in Christ. Does he still redeem those who are lost and in distress? Does the greater Boaz still buy back his people out of poverty and distress, even after they've made bad choices and squander his blessings? Does he still seek and save the lost? Does he still delight in saving lost causes? I understand the reasons for despair. I really do. If we look in our own hearts, if we look at the society around us, we can easily see a people, a place that look forsaken, that look desolate, maybe worse. But if we look to God's word, if we look to his promises, we will see many more reasons for hope. The new name that he promises to give us. We see a God who seeks out the supposedly forsaken. We see a God who redeems the destitute, the desolate. A God who says, you shall be called holy. Not because you've tricked everyone. Not because they're confused. Not because you are finally good enough. You'll be called holy because your Savior is holy and because he will clothe you in his holiness, his righteous robe. He will cover your shame. He will give you a new name. And then you will see that there is 
No rest for the sought out. That's our third and final point this morning. No rest for the sought out. You see this in the middle of the passage. And yes, the word no rest, that might not sound all that great on the surface, but this is not bad news. This is not the first half of that famous Augustine quote, our hearts are restless. That's not what's going on here. This is the kind of restlessness. This is the joyous work of someone who has found all that they want. It's Eric Little from Chariots of Fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. That's what's going on here. This is what happens when we remember that God is not resting until he accomplishes all of the things he's promised us. After verses 1 through 5, where we see that the Savior, he's not resting. He's not silent. That our Savior, he intends to rejoice over us. We also see this in verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. What's going on here? God has placed people in Jerusalem as watchmen, he says. Those who keep watch, those who guard, those who maintain constant vigilance, who take no rest, who, it says here, remember the Lord and his promises, who don't stay silent, who pray for God to bring his promises to pass, who take no rest and give God no rest. What's going on there? What, what, what does it mean to, to give God no rest? What well, means we pray with vigilance until we see what he has promised us. One commentator says it this way. Some blessings are like ripe fruit in autumn time, ready for the picking. Other blessings require the tree to be shaken violently. Another says we must strain every string of God's heart like, like beggars. Another, he, he comes right to the edge of irreverence and he says this. We must make God ashamed to look us in the face if he should deny the persistence of our souls. You see, my friends, never forget, we're God's people. Emphasis on God's people. God has a reputation to uphold. That is good news for us. God is not going to be known as a God who sometimes comes through. Again, that's good news for us. Don't forget that as we look at these Next couple of verses here, read verse eight, nine with me. It says, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Why is grain and wine and all this such a big deal? Because it was Israel's grain that we're talking about here. It's what God had promised to them. And now somebody else who worshiped another God was a false God was eating it. And God is saying, yes, I let that happen once to teach you a lesson. But I'm promising you, I will never let it happen again. I will give back your land and you will eat your food and enjoy it and be guests in my house, my sanctuary forever. Think for a minute, what was it like to watch others eat olives and grapes and drink their wine that they had planted, that God had promised to them? Here's the best comparison I could think of. 
If you ever sold a house, but, you know, just moved down the road, not, not very far away, down the road, across town, close enough to be able to go visit your old home, any of you? My first house in Colorado Springs, we, we had it repainted in the two years we lived there. It was a, a nice light gray with blue trim and, and white accents, too. My wife picked out the colors. It's, we're all grateful for that. And uh, very nice. We were very proud of it. And then we sold it. But, you know, a few months later, we're in the neighborhood. So we went to see that house that we had worked so hard to, and they had painted it yellow. Just, just the front door and the porch, but it was an ugly yellow. You have to take my word for it. It clashed with the whole color scheme of the house. It was the yellow that sticks out like a pimple in wedding photos. It was awful. It just felt wrong. And even though I love my new house, every time I see my old house in that ugly yellow porch, I say, that's my house. The porch is not supposed to be yellow. I just to ask you, is that similar to how Israel felt when they saw others who didn't worship the true and living God eating their fruit in the promised land? Now, maybe they had some regret because their disobedience is what got them kicked out of the land in the first place. But didn't they also think, that's my land. That's my milk and honey. And God is essentially saying, you're right. It is your land. It's actually my land that I am giving you, but we'll overlook that for now. It's your land. And I will never let someone else inherit it. I will never let someone else snatch it from you. You will inherit it. I promise. What I'm saying to you is that jealousy, that urgency you feel for the things that God has promised to us. God wants us not to rest until we have it. He wants us not to rest, but to be vigilant, to ask him to bring that promise, every promise, more and more to fruition. We should ask him to bring those promises to bear. We should ask him to make those things come true. You said you're making all things new. Oh Lord, make my life new. Now I need it. Lift the despair that I feel. Break the temptation toward that sin that I can't seem to shake. Make me stop worrying. Make me stop worrying about what other people think of me. Help me be content with the money, the blessings I have, instead of being jealous over all the stuff I don't have. Make me new. Make me new right now. All the parts of me. Or at least make me new enough to know that your promises are true, that you are doing that good work that you say you're doing. Do it more and more until I eat, until I drink, until I feast in your sanctuary, your holy place. Until that happens, remind me, show me that I am not forsaken. I'm holy through faith in Christ. I am redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ. I have been sought out. I've been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. You see, my friends, God will not rest until our faith becomes sight. So let us not rest. Let us keep praying, keep begging for him to show us his glory, to show us his goodness in the land of the living. Let us pray. Oh God, you're good. and Your promises to us never fail. Many times our 
perseverance fails, our energy fails, we get complacent, we get tired, we get despairing, we get discouraged by the fallen world that we see around us, we get discouraged by the remaining corruption we see in our own hearts. Oh, Father, would you continue to work in us? Would you make us new? Would you restore unto us the joy of our salvation? Would you restore unto us the hope that we have? Oh, Father, keep hope alive in our hearts. Do it not because we deserve it, not because we promise to try harder, but do it because you're a good and gracious Savior. And all that we ask, we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.